0: Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and megatrends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more, so you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show.
1: Compliance for entity tracking, licensing, and more uh really a a unique topic we haven't always talked about uh, on the show uh, about the uh, business entity itself we talk a lot about compliance when it comes to hr laws payroll tax laws but one of the most basic things is when you're setting up a business or i think maybe where people get the most trouble is expanding a business uh you end up in new states uh, uh new new jurisdictions that have their own uh entity registration licensing compliance requirements that you might you might think you know it, but you don't because it's new. So i uh, got a great guest here to help me unpack this topic today, uh, Brock Klinger. Uh, uh, Brock is the Director of Sales and Marketing over at Harbor Compliance. He's been with uh, Harbor Compliance for seven years, uh, and they're a leading provider of compliance solutions specifically for businesses and nonprofits around uh, entity licensing management and making them compliant uh, in, in all these areas. So welcome to the show, Brock.
2: Thank you very much, Mike, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: So let, let's maybe start out, uh, uh, if I'm a small business owner, how should I be thinking about um, entity management, licensing? What, what are the big buckets where businesses need to be set up?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that can be really a big source of confusion um, for a lot of small business owners, businesses of all size have these uh, points of confusion. We see them every day. Um, I find it simplest to think of compliance as falling into really three main categories when it comes to state-level compliance to register in multiple jurisdictions. You've got your entity, right? Everybody's got an entity. It's formed in their home jurisdiction, and if it's operating in multiple states, it should probably have multiple entity registrations in the various states, and that typically will fall under the auspices of the Secretary of State Office, right? So that's bucket number one bucket number two is going to be your your licensing right so you could have professional licensing that may apply um you could have local licenses that apply permitting those sorts of things and then number three would be your tax registration right so if you're selling goods on the ground in various states or um maybe you're employing multiple people in multiple different jurisdictions you're going to wind up with multiple tax registrations and so keeping things organized into those buckets helps people kind of Understand how the different pieces of the puzzle fit together and you can repeat that pattern across the United States as you expand into multiple jurisdictions.
1: So most people, if so if you're listening to this show, and watching the show today, you probably have a business, you're involved in a business and presumably you are licensed. You've set up the Secretary of State, you've got your EAN, you got your state ID, uh, you got your tax information. Um, Where is it that you see small businesses get themselves in the most trouble, presumably accidentally, uh, whether it's the renewal of these things or it's expansion? Where where, where do folks get themselves in trouble?
2: So it really depends on what stage of the game they're at, right? Um, There can be challenges at every stage. Um, When you're expanding, that can be especially tricky because when you move into new jurisdictions for the first time, you're coming up against something as a business owner that you've probably never dealt with before. You might've been right there in the thick of it when you formed your entity way back when, when you got started. But as you expand into new jurisdictions, now you're going through what feels like a parallel process and should be somewhat similar with somewhat familiar sounding names, but it's actually gonna be a little bit different everywhere that you go. Um, we have the, pl- the privilege of working with over 35,000 different clients and uh, I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff from entities that get registered under a new name in every state where they get registered. I've seen businesses formed in one home state register under a new name with that state's name actually in the title of the name. And states will approve these sorts of things. And it creates a bit of a paperwork mess when folks realize, oh, wait, that's actually all the same entity. And if I wanted to use a different name, I should have filed a DBA to, um, Individuals who will form a brand new entity in every jurisdiction in which they want, to, they want to operate. And they wind up with a dozen LLCs instead of just one LLC qualified in all the different jurisdictions where they'd like to operate. So expansion can be really tricky.
1: So I'm just trying to think how to formulate the question because you, by definition, you just said it's different everywhere. Um, is it is one of the common mistakes that a, a, if I'm a business owner Let's say I have some type of a services or retail business with a a physical location, someplace I serve customers. Uh, customers come to my office, uh, whatever, and I open up a new office. Um, are people unwittingly opening, creating new, say, LLCs? Uh, are they unwittingly creating new EINs? Is it one EIN, multiple EAC, uh, 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 LLCs? Uh, how, how, do, how does all this interplay with DBAs? I mean, so uh, there, there's the I think I'm done with acronym soup, but ca- <laughs> that a little bit more to, to try to without getting the specific use cases. Demystify this for folks.
2: Sure. Yeah. Not a problem. I think uh, you went through a lot of the common permutations there, um, but typically the, the layers, they'll, they'll go like this. So let's let's take a restaurant as an example. Um, this is a great example of a small business that would would benefit from having um, uh, an overarching view of what this process is going to look like in a checklist. Okay, so you start with an entity in your home jurisdiction, and your main obligations to maintain a, an entity is to maintain a registered agent so that you can receive service of process. That's a legal requirement in every jurisdiction. And then you file your annual report. Okay, that stuff is generally done with the secretary of state. You file those things annually, you keep your agent on file, and you're going to be in good standing for the most part, right? Now, as this business expands, you'll duplicate that registration in multiple jurisdictions, right? You'll move into a new state and they'll ask you, hey, I got to have proof of you being a good corporate citizen in your home state. Can you help me out with that? And you would then provide them proof of good standing. They would allow you to register there and you'd appoint a new registered agent and you'd win a brand new annual report to file every year. Right, to maintain in all the different jurisdictions where you'd operate. Now, if you have employees in your home state, you're also gonna be registering for payroll tax. Um, if you need to hire new servers or staff to run your new restaurant across the border in the new state, you would need to have payroll tax registrations in place in those locations as well. And since you're selling a physical good here, you're, maybe you're, you're selling pizzas, right? You're going to collect sales tax in those jurisdictions. You'll need to have unique tax IDs for each of those tax registrations income tax registrations will be important. And maybe um, your, your business would benefit from a branding perspective, from having a specific name that resonates better with that local clientele, or just for um, signing contracts under localized names, you would use a what's called the Doing Business As name, a DBA, you could have a DBA for the storefront end, either one of
1: those,
2: right? Um, from there, you could have state or local general business licenses, some states have those generally filed with the Secretary of State. You might wind up with food service licenses. Um, You probably need to be um, inspected and be permitted. Liquor licenses could potentially be on on the docket for you all. And all of this just gets more complex as you add multiple locations. So it can layer on top of one another pretty quickly. And if the first step that you make in this process of expanding your business into multiple locations is to form a brand new LLC, which is generally not what most folks would want to do, Everything after that becomes infinitely more complex because you started off on the wrong foot. You have these cascading issues that result from that. And it may need to be walked back in the future, which can be very costly.
1: Got it. Okay. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion. I'm trying to I know there's confusion even for me and I'm a small business owner. Um The difference between say personal licenses and licensing of the business, right? So uh, if I'm Mm -hmm. a hair salon, I may have to be have my license as a a licensed cosmetologist, right? To be able to even Mm -hmm. put my hands on another human and charge for services. But the business itself may also need its own license as satisfied by the board of cosmetology and then there's a local business that might have a business license. And then there's uh, sales tax and payroll tax. If you're in one location and your employees all work within your state, you're fortunate enough to do that with maybe a single secretary of state, but that could be even multiple organizations within a single state. Correct?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really glad that you brought that up, the difference between an individual uh, and a firm license, okay, um, it definitely does cause a lot of confusion for folks. So rather than cosmetology, that's an example I'm personally not that familiar with. You don't look like you are either, Mike. Um, yeah. maybe we'll stick with like engineering or something like that. There it's go, uh, a little over my wheelhouse. Um, when, when an engineer, when their firm wants to do business in a new state, they'll follow the same process we've been talking about, right? You get your secretary of state registration in place generally, so you can bid on jobs there. And you'll then quickly follow that up with a firm license so that, you know, you have a, a license to do business as an engineering firm in that location. But in order to meet the stipulations for that state, you'll first need to have an individual engineer generally pass through a new testing process or, um, uh, some other equivalent, um, filing process to get that individual, um, the permission they need to operate as a professional engineer in that new jurisdiction. Right. So now you've got this individual who holds a license, probably in your own state and the new one that you're targeting. They're what's called the the engineer and responsible charge or they'll have their license on the line, so to speak. And when they take that exam, they are now able to list themselves as the qualifying individual on the firm license. And if you have that in place, um, then you are able to operate in that jurisdiction. And it's really important to understand the difference between the individual and the firm license, because the individual may get licensed and be able to stamp drawings or what have you in that particular jurisdiction, but the firm may not be able to operate there until all of these details have been tied up with the board and the firm license and the individual license are maintained uh, simultaneously. The other tricky thing that comes up here is when you've got an individual and responsible charge on your license, your company license is tied to that person. So if that individual were to leave your firm or retire or go into another line of work or let their license lapse, that has implications for your own license. And so your firm can lose its ability to do business if your individuals are not keeping up to date with their responsibilities, doing their continuing education hours, doing the license renewals on an individual basis. Keeping all of these details together in the same spot can be really tricky. And this pattern that we've established here for engineering is not unique to that industry. Um, It applies across lots and lots of different regulated industries. So having a spot to keep it all in one place makes life much easier for organizations who operate in these regulated spaces.
1: So sticking with your engineering use case. So um, not necessarily a multi-location brick and mortar business, right? So how how would it, and I'm assuming the answer is gonna be it depends on states, but um, if I'm an engineering firm and I'm based in Austin, Texas, um, but I'm serving customers on-site for major construction projects in those states, am I safe thinking, oh, I'm an Austin, Texas-based firm, I don't need to be licensed there? What? How, how, should, how should companies be thinking about that?
2: Yeah, it, you're right. It totally does depend on states. But I'll tell you what we tell a lot of our clients is that... Um, you know, when you are, are doing business in any new jurisdiction, to think that you wouldn't be triggering the need to register in those, those places, um, just on, on a, a gut assumption, can be a little risky, right? Um, the state yeah. has these regulations in place to protect consumers, to make sure they know who's doing business in their jurisdiction, to generate a stream of revenue for the, the state as well. Yeah. Um, and it's all in service of, of protecting consumers, right? Um, And so to think that you could be doing business in another jurisdiction, providing services there, uh, whether you have a brick and mortar location or not, um, it's a slippery slope to assume that you could just, you know,
1: we'll
2: just give it a try, right? We're we're not just gonna go out on a limb and assume that the state's not gonna, gonna throw the book at us because if that does happen, the penalties can be quite severe, right? There can be legal repercussions for that. You could have, uh, you know, inability to transact, transact business going forward. You could lose your right to work on the projects for which you're trying to bid. All of those things are major risks. When weighed against the, the relatively insignificant costs of getting registered or maintaining a license, it's sort of a no-brainer. If I'm an engineering firm bidding on a multi-million-dollar job and I got an application that's going to cost me, I don't know, maybe 7500 dollars in filing fees. Like, why wouldn't I go out there and get that registration in place in in you know hopes that you know nothing would go wrong? Of course, but you'll know for certain that you've taken the steps that were required to do business in that
1: jurisdiction. So I want to visit some other use cases, but let, let's just stay on that path because on face value, it's like, why wouldn't I spend seventy five bucks to get registered? No brainer, right? And and I think the answer mm-hmm. is, I, I suspect people aren't sitting there thinking, hmm. 75 bucks. That'd be a nice steak dinner. I I think I'm going to risk it. But the reality is people don't don't do it because they're unaware and they don't even know it exists. Right. So it's an error of omission. What not trying to unnecessarily scare folks, but that $75, $100 registration fee. What could be the potential cost in in fines or otherwise for not doing this correctly?
2: So, um, speaking to any specific examples or is a little tricky here because every state does this a little bit differently, but I'll I'll give you an example of how they might calculate it. Um, we've had the, um, pleasure of helping out a lot of customers who've run up against this kind of challenge. As you've mentioned, um, just by mistake, they didn't realize that it was required of them. And what many states will do is sort of set the counter from the time when they should have been registered, either for a license or for a, a secretary of state registration, entity registration, um, and, and determine how much uh, business they were able to transact over that time period, or however many days they've been operating without the proper registration in place. And they'll apply a formula to say, hey, you've been in here for X amount of days. That means you owe me Y amount of money. And they're just gonna multiply it by the amount of time that's passed. Those fees can rack up really quickly, so the monetary penalties can can be steep, right? Significant fines are are um, faced by companies that fail to qualify when they're supposed to. These states are pretty motivated to go after uh, businesses that do this too, right? They they're viewing these outsiders as unfair competition with domestic companies, um, and they're looking out once again for their their citizens' um, uh, health and, and safety. So. Uh, they want to make sure that uh, the, the public is protected and they want to collect those those uh, revenues that uh result from having these organizations registered. But also for the entity in question, there's things that go beyond the monetary cost of, of the penalties. Right. Uh, for instance, you could potentially lose access to the state's courts if you're not registered with the secretary of state properly. And if that's the case, then your contracts are really difficult to enforce if you can't go to court or bring a yeah. suit um, to enforce them. So these, these have um, they have costs associated with them that can be very difficult to calculate, but they can be really substantial on the whole.
1: Yeah. Um, I think about the cost. So the $75 to $100 that you might have spent to register uh, could easily result in thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in fines. Probably the biggest cost is the, potential opportunity cost that you might miss out on right for, for not being able to do business either on this contract with this customer or who knows how long in the future. Um, how, so, so that, yeah, so that's a use case on, I don't have a brick and mortar, but I had may have contracts. Um, how would an employer know? Where do they go to look? How, how, Obviously, they could use your company, your software. We'll talk about that for a minute at the end of our conversation. Um, But in traditional course of business, how would a small business owner even know where the hell to go to check this kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, so we started at at the top of the hour speaking about the various buckets that compliance is typically divided into at the state level. You've got your entity registration, your licenses, and you've got your tax registrations. And um, that is a pattern that's repeated many places. But here's the catch. Generally, no matter where you go, none of those agencies responsible for those types of registrations communicate with one another. There's not a lot of proactive discussion amongst these um, departments of the state uh, to say, hey, I've, I've got an entity registration here. Therefore, tax department, Department of Revenue, you should know that a tax registration is coming. Or, you know, professional licensing agency, you should know that a license is coming your way there's not a lot of that internal collaboration. So the answer to your question, Mike, is they don't know. The the client or rather the, uh, the firm that's getting registered, it's on them, it's incumbent upon the, the registrant to figure out what regulations apply to them in those jurisdictions. And in many cases, that means somebody has to figure it out, call the state, sit on hold, ask their questions, hope to get through to somebody who's knowledgeable enough to direct them to departments other than their own that they'll need to speak to. And in many cases, we see this all the time because we submit filings in such large volumes. The responses that we get from the states are, are not intentionally unhelpful, but they are they are barred from giving legal advice on a, you know a whim when clients ask for it or when registrants ask for it. So it can be really difficult for folks to navigate it when the best sort of answer that they can get from a, a regulatory authority is hey you're going to have to call this other agency good luck
1: yeah and i can imagine how i how ironic if i'm a small business owner like i'm an engineering firm i probably know who the associations are around licensing for engineering because it's what i do for a living same if i'm a cosmetologist same if i'm a chemist or whatever the case may be i know I, I that's my industry and so, so i know those things but Secretary of State, Department of Revenue, uh, I'm thinking, well, that's just my state government. Of course, they talk to each other, but clearly not always the case, right?
2: Absolutely. The other tricky thing is for a lot of regulated industries, their um, licensing board may not necessarily have its own department. Um, See that in a lot of different jurisdictions. If you wanna get licensed in DC, for instance, they use a mostly consolidated application for most application types, most uh, regulated industries, all file that one particular application, which is great and actually fairly user-friendly in many senses, but it's not obvious. It's not immediately obvious to the applicant that, oh, I should be looking for the Department of Consumer Regulatory Affairs. Uh, That doesn't ring a bell to a cosmetologist or uh, an engineer necessarily.
1: Right, right, when you think about that. Okay, so I kind of skipped over the first one, which is if I I have brick and mortar business, I'm opening a new location, that one is probably just intuitive. Okay, I'm going to have to do stuff from, uh, it, it, to to set this new entity up and, in the three categories you talked about. Second one we talked about if it's not brick and mortar, um, but I'm just doing business in a location. Um, what what about uh, maybe I maybe I'm uh, a St. Louis based employer and uh, my employees happen to live in St. Louis proper or West County St. Louis. Uh, so they're all residents of Missouri. Uh, but as I grow and I have to tap into a larger talent pool, I have some folks from across the Mississippi over on the Illinois side. They come working for me. Um, I might not even, or maybe one of my existing employees says, you know, hey, I'm going to move out to the suburbs and they move east, not west. And here they're in uh, Edwardsville, Illinois. Um, and I think none the wiser. What, what, are the, what are the legal requirements of the employer for something as simple as a single employee in a different state.
2: Yeah, so that can be a, a pretty slippery slope. As soon as you move that individual and they are doing the majority of their work in that new jurisdiction, it could mean new registration requirements for you. So that means not just your payroll tax registration, which in many cases you can actually get without form qualifying and registering with the secretary of state first, um, but it may also mean that you need that secretary of state registration just because the Department of Revenue will grant you the tax IDs necessary to you know, calculate the right uh, payroll taxes. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to tell you, hey, by the way, that generally constitutes doing business. Therefore, you should have a secretary of state registration in this location as well.
1: Is that is that something, Brock, that you guys see pretty common then where uh, I hire either one of my employees relocates to go out of state? Uh, but maybe it's the same metro area, they're just commuting, uh, or I hire somebody new. So I'm like, okay, I know that there's a different uh, uh, income tax rate in, in, in state taxes. So I, I, I know I got to set that up, but they don't even think about what that may or may not trigger from entity registration, right?
2: yeah absolutely so we see that all the time so i'm in pennsylvania and uh, we have lots of clients locally here who um, know the difference between you know the regular state uh, income tax but also the, the difference between philadelphia and the rest of the state that one is usually stuck in folks mind i haven't run into too many people who were totally unaware of the philadelphia tax rate but for those that are commuting from across the river and doing the majority of their work in in new jersey instead it may not have even dawned on them because their employer is located in Philadelphia and they're using that to calculate their rate for all sorts of different payroll tax purposes and so um, that can be a real uh, challenge even if they do update the the payroll tax registration for New Jersey so they have the new tax id that may also mean that they need to be foreign qualifying in New Jersey to do business general purposes.
1: Yeah something that I think uh, we're, we're, we're still going to see unfold I'd say for the next several years you had so many employees that maybe they drive into an office. They're maybe maybe they were flexible, right? And so stick, stick with uh, your your uh, Philly uh, uh, story there. So uh, maybe they lived over in Cherry Hills on the on the New Jersey side. They drive into Philly every day, um, and their their tax uh, their income taxes set up for New Jersey, all appropriate. Uh, uh, but all of a sudden, COVID hits, and now they work from home. And so instead of being a flexible employee who used to, the, you know, the occasional Friday afternoon work from home or they would stay home on a day that they had a, a kid's dentist appointment or something, now they work from home every day, right? Maybe the office doesn't even exist, but they never changed any classifications, any entity registrations. Could speak to how that is getting employers into trouble.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So those folks should really be updating their tax registrations and their Secretary of State registrations on the basis of having an employee on the ground, usually constituting doing business, right? And that's really what the states are looking for. So that could be another instance that you know harkens back to the example that we used earlier, how the state will take a look at, hey, when did they when did they start operating here full time? That's what we use as the trigger date for when they should have been form qualified originally. And now I'm going to count up the days since that started, and I'm going to bill you for the amount of time that's passed. You're going to get a fine for not having been registered properly. And that can be a real challenge. Yeah.
1: And I tell you what, as, as states, and I'm not trying to vilify state governments, but as states get handed down unfunded legislation that they must implement, you know, the, the states don't have a printing press. They don't get to print money, right? They don't, they don't, they don't have a federal currency um to get themselves out of trouble they have to operate on under balanced budgets and so a lot of these states they are scrambling to to fill budget needs right and so uh they're gonna be they're gonna be looking for ways to get this money and regrettably a lot of it retroactively right
2: yes, absolutely there is a there is a motivation there on the part of the states to enforce these regulations and there's plenty of reasons why this is necessary. Um, there are also ample opportunities, especially these days since COVID, um, to go after additional legislation. Um, we won't open up the whole can of worms of uh, exposure to sales tax nexus uh, through South Dakota uh, versus Wayfair, that Supreme Court decision, although it does have broad implications for lots of organizations that are selling across multiple states. And that has been a really difficult set of legislation To enforce up until now because just like everyone else in the world state governments are facing major difficulty hiring folks to help them out right to enforce this stuff and covid has really slowed down their ability to go after that type of legislation which would represent major new streams of revenue to the states but as the world begins to turn back to normal and the uh, hiring isn't quite as tight as it once was they'll be going after this in full force. And I expect that to be one of the major trends going ahead uh, for the next five to 10 years on state government enforcement.
1: Brock, so it, it's a it's a deep ocean to go into. Uh, to, it's a whole webinar series in and of itself. Um, <laughs> but what guidance would you give, say, the average em- employer, small, mid-sized company? How should they be thinking about sales tax as it relates to, entity management.
2: So sales tax as it relates to entity management has a lot of parallels to the payroll tax registration situation in that when it's it's easy, easy enough to know when you're being exposed to sales tax registration, maybe not as easy it one, as it once was, but there are actually a lot of helpful calculators out there on the internet you can Google around a little bit and find any number of different um, sales tax exposure assessments on the web that'll tell you at a high level where uh, you're likely to be exposed to sales tax nexus due to these new regulations. Um, It can be more difficult, though, to um, put two and two together that just because I'm exposed in sales tax, I know now exactly what I need to do to fix it. Right. So to bridge the gap between, okay, I've got some exposure here because I'm selling a good that would, you know, um, really trigger nexus requirements in these jurisdictions uh, to then go and say, I'm going to register for sales tax or I'm going to, I'm going to file some sort of paperwork to alert the tax department, tax authorities in these states that I've been selling this good. And I'm going to, I'm going to actually disclose that to the state voluntarily. Then also connect that to the fact that if I am selling those goods in the state, that could also mean that I'm doing business there. Uh, and therefore I should have a secretary of state registration on top of that. So the simple fact is that the vast majority of, of organizations that we work with, are drastically under-registered, especially if they're operating in these various industries that sell a lot of goods that trigger these requirements.
1: And so just the the good old fashioned brick and mortar business, who maybe all their employees live local and within the state, uh, COVID hits, they start getting creative, how do I serve customers? And they try to ramp up what was previously a non-existent e-commerce business. Uh, all of a sudden find themselves selling products to customers outside of their state right because God bless them they were successful in in any launching e- e-commerce and they unwittingly walked themselves into uh, a hornet's nest of entity compliance issues right I'm, I'm not overstating that right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, it, it can be a real challenge. So um, my, my in-laws, they run a, a local winery here in Pennsylvania. Um, and this is the exact example that you just shared. Um, they had zero online e-commerce business leading, heading into the pandemic. Everything was local. Um, the pandex- pandemic shut down in-person sales in, in many fashions for their business. And so they were forced to go online. And it was a lifeline at the time to be able to sell those products locally now they're recognizing all of a sudden oh wow i'm getting a lot of interest from folks in other states and it becomes a really difficult and thorny question to navigate do i open myself up and allow those folks to to buy this product because if i do it means i'm going to have uh, a new licensing requirement i'm going to have new sales tax registration requirements and i'm going to have new reporting requirements in all of these different jurisdictions which can be which can be a major uh, challenge and, and uh, a really difficult uh, problem to untangle, especially for a small business owner.
1: Are there other use cases, Brock, that we should be thinking about here? We don't have to hit every single weird nuance, but uh, we talked about brick and mortar businesses, when you open a new brick and mortar location, and really you should be thinking location, not just multi-state, right? Cause your example, uh, taxes in Philly are different than say rural Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania right? So mm-hmm. brick and mortar, if you're gonna open a new brick and mortar, even if it's the same EIN, same LLC, same D- doing business as same DBA, just location number one versus two, there's still uh, entity registration issues that must be at minimum explored to see, to, to eliminate, maybe there aren't, <laughs> but at least explore to see if there might be issues, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to put it simply, you know, who does this apply to? It's it's essentially everyone. Right. Regardless of how many states you're operating in today at the most basic level, you know, you're going to have that entity registration requirement. You're very likely going to have some kind of tax registration requirement and potentially that that professional licensing regulation uh, requirement applying to it. There's very few organizations that aren't going to be impacted by all three of these. And I, I struggle to think of any business that won't be uh, impacted by at least two of them. So it's worth um, any business owner's time to investigate these things and understand um, where their current status is. And the benefits of that are huge because it allows you to be proactive um, and nimble as a business. Um, whether, you know, it's new bid requests coming up in new jurisdictions um, that uh, allows you to respond really quickly. Um whether it allows you to speed up your hiring process, right? Um, the faster you get your tax ID, the faster you hire and onboard your people, the faster they begin to make an impact for your business once you uh, win that business in new jurisdictions, uh, or even just locally, staying on top of what um, DBAs you have or local permits you have or who your individual professional license holders are in locations so you know who your next qualifier in charge for your professional license in a new state could be. All of those things are super important and at a high level, you know, big picture, it's all about having your compliance uh, functions in in one place and at your fingertips so that you know where these things are at any given time, because playing catch up is no way to operate your business. It allows leadership to make faster, better quality decisions when they can see this information, uh, when they know where and how their business is registered and not to mention, you know, the teams that would take on this regulatory work, uh, can be spending their time doing things that are a little more value adding than than researching these requirements on a state to state or county to county basis.
1: Yeah, I mean, you could spend hours and hours researching to find out a, the, a solution that is actually extremely simple and inexpensive, right? But it took mm-hmm.
2: the, absolutely
1: five ten hours to, to learn that. Um, oh yeah,
2: the, <laughs> you know, there's no shortage of regulations to research when you go state to state like this, right. um, and that pattern continues across multiple jurisdictions. So um save yourself the time and and um skip ahead to the the expert solution
1: yeah and, and i'm gonna and i'm gonna close on that in, ju- in just a minute here i want to make sure i c- tie off on the on the most common high probability use cases for anybody watching listening today so brick and mortar expansion seems obvious and i think probably business owners don't get themselves i would i'm going to assume business owners don't get themselves into as much trouble because it's obvious. I'm adding a location of my business. There's probably going to be new rules and regulations apply. Uh, uh, another use case we talked about that they get in trouble because it's not so obvious. Maybe, I, maybe in my brain, my brick and mortar business is still right here, but I'm performing work in a different state, a different part of the country. Uh, maybe it's a construction job. Maybe I'm installing some equipment that I manufactured here, whatever the case may be. May be. Uh, So it's the doing business in a different place. There's the uh, performing work, even if it's a virtual employee, if they are serving customers. So maybe uh, the core business hasn't changed, but the location in which my employee sits has changed while they perform the work. So there's where there's fulfilling contracts, serving customers in different locations. There's employees sitting at different locations that could be impacted. And then finally, this is maybe the uh, the Wild West and probably a follow up uh, conversation for the show is more around the sales tax side um, of where consumers sit, what their domicile is that they're purchasing your product or service from and what legal requirements that puts upon you uh, as a product or service provider for sales tax registration. The last one that I want to come to, um, what are the biggest areas that customers, your customers, but I guess just businesses in general, maybe they're not multi-state. Maybe they're, maybe they, they are just one location and they don't have employees spread all over. They're, they're relatively static, but they still get themselves in trouble in all the time across those three buckets that you mentioned at the top of the conversation. What about yeah. maybe that most common use case of all for the static business, customer base, employee base in brick and mortar is relatively unchanged? Where did they get themselves in the most trouble?
2: Yeah, yeah, great question. So um, for for those folks, usually the challenge is that um, because they are unchanging, it is never a major focus for them. It's never a top priority to be reviewing these sorts of things. So I'll give the example of Pennsylvania, where we're located. Yeah. Um, as long as I've been in, in this business, um, Pennsylvania has always had a decennial, annual to be a once every 10 year annual report filing for all for-profit businesses that operate in this state, right? Um, everyone who's been operating under that regime is about to have their world shaken up next year when it goes to an annual filing report. And I can guarantee that most folks who are faced with this, that is most of the businesses in Pennsylvania, are not going to be aware of the change in the requirements unless they're paying very close attention to what the Secretary of State and Department of State is is saying about this new requirement. So that is the number one uh, issue that we see with businesses that are in a static state. If they think they know what they're doing and they think that they have a process in place that can handle the existing set of requirements, but every once in a while the requirements will change and they may not find out soon enough to act and you can wind up with all sorts of problems once your entity falls out of good standing and you're having to reinstate and file back due filings and penalty fees along with it that could have been avoided by analyzing your situation and finding you know a purpose-built software to store all of this information in one place centrally located so that your leadership is aware of where things stand before pro- problems arise
1: yeah, I, 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 I'm assuming that that last bucket, what sounds so simple, is probably the biggest trap, because that's the, that's the one that just lulls you to sleep, because you think everything is fine, and uh, the reporting requirements may have changed, and it's not the kind of thing that you see in the, on the six o'clock news, right? In, in a world where our news is so fragmented, and... Uh, We don't necessarily respond to unsolicited email and phone calls because it looks and feels an awful lot like spam. Um, It's pretty reasonable to think that a a business owner, a a small employer, mid-sized company just simply isn't going to know about reporting rules, uh, rule changes and new compliance requirements just because it's not what they do for their day-to-day, right? Right.
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, look, it, these filings at the the base, most basic level are not difficult things to complete for the most part. When you do a Secretary of State annual report filing, it's asking you for the you know names of the organizers and the people who are involved in forming that business, and maybe some details about its location, who its registered agent is. Most folks can do those filings in no time. It's not a, a huge burden to complete them. The challenge is remembering to do the thing. That's the challenge for everyone. And that's really where a lot of the value is added, not to mention the curveballs that will come up inevitably when those requirements change from time to
1: time. Yeah, yeah. Brett, let's do this. So uh, the purpose of this show truly is to share the very best information we possibly can with small and sized businesses so they can grow their business, so they can stay compliant, they can find talent, they can uh, have the right people, motivate them, inspire them, pay them in a compliant way so that they can grow. Uh, and the value is meant to be the information itself. Uh, but I will give you a chance here, you know, t- take a second to explain what hardware compliance does because this is kind of one of those things that just kind of feels like a no-brainer because, you know, like you said, once you know what is required to stay compliant, in most cases it's pretty simple and in most cases it's pretty inexpensive. It's the, co- it's the opportunity cost of all the time it takes to research these things. Maybe just take a second and tell us about Harbor Compliance.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Harbor Compliance is a software and services business, and we're really focused on helping organizations maintain compliance with regulatory requirements across all states and across multiple industries. So our, the way that we help folks is to help them maintain those Secretary of State registrations. We are a nationwide registration provider. We do the annual reports, and we offer purpose-built software to help organizations manage all three of the categories that we cover right the entity registrations the tax registrations the professional licenses all of those things are also backed by our proprietary reference database which is a massive database it's the the world's largest license library of US licensing requirements and so when something like an annual report due date or a professional license filing requirement changes because we do so many filings for so many different organizations we're often first to know The states will even reach out to us, examiners to let us know proactively before the public knows. We'll update that database and let all of our clients who have their data in there know about the change. So there's a network effect there. The more people who use the software, the better the experience is for everyone. And this is the type of software that allows you to really be bulletproof and keep your process airtight. You don't have to worry about something changing and throwing your established process into a tailspin. We will update things proactively as changes occur so that you have peace of mind uh, and can run your business. Focus on the things that matter most to you, which is growth and expansion.
1: Well, we're big fans and, and we're, we're uh, sure as then entered into a new partnership with our compliance, just because we see this. You know, we, we talk to talk to small business owners every day. Um, and this is one of the areas that they say that they need help with. Right. Is is these registrations for new states. Hey, I've got a new employee in this state. I need to register with the state. I don't know how to do that. Can you help me? Uh, after, after enough customers ask you that question, you find who the best is. And, and in our experience, we found that was hard compliance. And so, uh, 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 Brock, I appreciate the conversation today. I appreciate sharing the information. Uh, and, and I think this will be a huge value add for, for our customers as well. So Brock, is there anything else we didn't talk about that you wanted to today that you think our audience could get value from?
2: Uh, no, no, absolutely. I think we covered uh, the gamut here, Mike, and appreciate the opportunity to share it with anyone. I'd welcome any questions that anyone has. Um, I'd be happy to support you going forward and, and answer those compliance questions and make your life a little bit easier.
1: Okay. Rock, I enjoyed talking to you very much into our audience. Thanks for attending today, and we will talk to you on next week's show. Thanks.
0: At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront costs and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws. Visit AssureSoftware.com.